Welcome to Drop Everything, podcast number 49. I am your host, Dan Holzman, and our guest on this podcast is longtime Vegas veteran comedy performer, Mr. Michael Hawley. Before we talk to Michael, though, let's thank our sponsors, starting with sponsor number one, the IJA. That stands for International Jugglers Association. The IJA can be found at juggle.org. Learn about this great group of jugglers, their annual festival, we just had our 70th in Cedar Rapids, and so much more at juggle.org. Let's thank sponsor number two, Ringdama. You can go to www.ringdama.com to find out about this exciting new skill toy invented by me, Dan Holzman. But also, look out for the Zingdama, brought to you by Zing Toys this Christmas, the LED version of the Ringdama. All right, before you go to juggle.org, before you buy yourself a Ringdama, Let's drop everything and get ready for Mr. Michael Hawley. Welcome to the Drop Everything Podcast, number 49, Mr. Michael Hawley. Hello, Michael. Hey, Dan. It's Michael Hawley. How are you? Is this Michael Hawley? It is, in fact. Cool. Let me check. It is. And where, where am I catching you at? Are you, uh, you live in Las Vegas? I live in Las Vegas. I'm at my fabulous estate here in Las Vegas, Nevada, the entertainment capital of the world. Well, you've been working in Las Vegas for what, over 30 years, 35 years. Have you lived there this whole time? Almost. It'll be 30 years this year on my birthday. I was sent to a show at the Sands Hotel on September 12, 1987. And I've been here almost all the time. I went away for two years to do a show in the Bahamas. And then one year I was in Los Angeles uh, before we moved back here. Now, do you feel like one of those acts that's sort of a like under the radar that even though you've been working all this time, that you just really haven't been someone who's gotten sort of promotion in the in the juggling community? Yeah, and I think that is partly because I've I've been to one IJA convention in my whole career, and mostly because I've been working and I haven't gotten out there. And I, I went to one when it was here down by the um, the border. They had it at the hotel down there, Buffalo Bills or something, and they asked me to do a little workshop there, so I went down there, and that was fun. It looked like a lot of fun. Everybody was having a great time juggling. There were several hundred people in the big ballroom juggling everything they could imagine, and it was a good time. But all the other occasions where there was a convention, I was always working, so I never got out there. Is that, is that Prim, Nevada? Right, Prim, Nevada, right. Thanks for you knowing the word. Well, I was there as well. I remember seeing Michael Chirik out there. So there was a, quite a few other Vegas professionals made that journey from from the Strip. Yeah. It's really changed a lot in Vegas. I remember I'd go down and I could see six or seven jugglers working the Strip at one time. You know, the, like the oh, whole yeah, review yeah. shows. Right. It has really changed. With the, the, uh, the infusion of Cirque shows here, they don't have acts. You know, they have all the... The, the bits that they do, but it's not like there's a soloist that comes out front and center and, and does something, really. And so all of the jugglers have been kind of forced out. I think there's myself, Wally Eastwood, and, oh boy, oh, there's a, you know, there's a couple of uh, technical jugglers in the V show that come in and out. What about uh, Circus Circus? Are still still have acts over there? They do. I don't think that there's a juggler over there now, but I never actually I never go down there. At this point in my life, I never go to the strip unless I'm working. So, 
you know, you just get over those things and you don't want to fight the traffic and the parking and all that. Well, I think it used to be that the, the prevalent type of entertainment were review shows. Like, I remember that's what it was. You'd see, like, uh, what was it, uh, at Bally's or, or the Stardust. They were like Lido Show or, or you know, uh, the Jubilee. Right. It just seemed like that kind of vanished overnight. Yeah, that disappeared when Cirque came in. And all of those shows started to fall apart. I think the Lido show, Enter the Night, was the first one to, to close down there at the Stardust. And then in 2009, I was in Follies Brugere for about three years, and it closed in 2009. And, you know, the I was explaining this to a young kid on uh, at a show the other day and told him that the acts were there so that they could change the set behind the curtain. So they'd close the curtain, they'd send out an act, and entertain the crowd for five or ten minutes while they changed the whole set. And nowadays they don't have to do that. The Cirque shows are just all sort of stream of consciousness, and they just keep going. They never stop, so they don't need those kind of acts. Plus, I think that they really market themselves to the international crowd, so they don't want guys like the Raspini brothers or myself or, or Wally, guys that are talking, because half the crowd can't understand what they're saying anyway. So... Um, there's very few places now for acts to perform. I think maybe also some of the spectacle of the review shows got a bit dated. I remember we were doing the, the one at Bally's, I think it was Jubilee, and we were like on before right. the sinking of the Titanic. And we, we, <laughs> yeah. we had to fill that time. Like you're saying, there was like an eight-minute gap where they had to change the sets. And certainly as yeah. a, a comedian, hearing all that noise behind you wasn't optimal. But there were a lot no. more working opportunities, that's for sure. Yeah. And, yeah, I, I hear that noise even in the show I'm in right now, Vegas, the show there at Planet Hollywood. I can hear the guys go, oh, my finger, oh, <laughs> and crashing, banging steps and stairs and lights. And it's uh, it sounds like a train wreck back there sometimes, but you just have to ignore it and focus on your work and keep them laughing. We used to do a lot of opening acts, too. That's another market that, you know, there's be a lot of headliners used to come to Vegas. And those also seem to vanish overnight. I mean, we that was about 75% of our work. I would say during a, a ten-year stretch in the in the eighties, early nineties. Right. Well, that's the first place I saw you was uh, opening for Jay Leno over there in Atlantic City, and then I also uh, Tyler Lincoln uh, and I came over to see you at the Desert Inn, which is not even there anymore, and uh, you were opening for Dennis Miller there. That was one of my favorite places, Desert Inn. That was right on the Strip there, across from uh, the Stardust. That was a really classy right. hotel. Now, we first met, that was Atlantic City, another place that we used to work quite a bit in a certain period of time. It was never a great place to work or, or the nicest place, but we did Atlantic City a lot. I think I met you first there in the early, it would be the early 80s? Uh, probably late. Uh, probably like 1988, I was there at a show called Fizz, catchy name, at Resorts International. And... Uh, you guys were next door, and we got together. We watched the show and then hung out for a little while and practiced some juggling like we do. I remember that show because a lot of guys would come in. It was like a, a kind of a short run. Like you guys would come in for like two weeks or a month. Yeah, it seemed like uh, it seemed like about ten years because it was January in Atlantic City. There was snow everywhere. It was minus ten degrees, so there was nothing really to do. So it seemed forever. And they put us up in this little apartment place squeezed between two parking structures so you'd open your curtains and look out your sliding glass door and all you'd see are these uh, bricks on the parking structure which was an incredible view for Atlantic City. 
What was there? Was there a phone down the hall? As I remember. Yes, there was one pay phone <laughs> in the hall. I remember hallway. that. <laughs> yeah, Chipper Lowell did it after I did it. Yeah. Um, Tim Simpson, you know, I think. Guys yes, Tim. Yes, I, I think Tim lives here in Las Vegas now. I haven't seen him for years, but he and I and Chip. This is kind of a fun thing. We were all royal court jesters at Disneyland, starting back in like 1984. I was doing some street performing in Newport Beach, and Dana and I think Tim walked by and said, "Hey, you need to come and work with us." Talking Dana so Daniels. Audition, Dana Daniels. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were all Tim and Dana Daniels and Chipper Lowell and Tyler Lincoln. You know yeah, Tyler, sure. And uh, the Passing Zone guys. Yeah, Owen Morrison, John Wheat. That was a famous gig, the Royal Jesters. A lot of uh, jugglers who went on to have good careers did that for at least a summer or two. Yeah, almost all of us are still working as performers. That's a, and, and, you know, you talk about that 10,000 hours. Now, whether that's really true or not. We, sure. Mal is that Malcolm Gladwell? Mal Malcolm Gladwell, right, um, in the Outliers book. And we really got our 10,000 hours there. We would do eight sets of half an hour each every day that we worked. And it was very unusual for Disney for what they were doing there because normally Disney is so scripted with all of their employees. And basically, uh, Stan, was it Stan Freeze, I think it was, who's the entertainment director back then, I auditioned for him in his office for him and his secretary. And he said, okay, you're good. Go get a costume. And right. beyond that, he had no idea what we were going to do. I juggled bowling balls and an M&M in his office. And he said, okay, that's good. Go get, a, go get your gesture costume. And beyond that, they never said, you can't do this or you can do that or whatever. The only time we got in trouble is when we would kind of play with the schedule a little bit so that what, two of us would be out there at one time and we could do passing. And then we'd get in trouble because we would block the entire roadway with an audience and they'd say, you can't do that anymore because nobody can get through. Well, those are one of those gigs where... Where you guys do a lot of shows and there's lots of interaction. Like I used to do uh, Magic Mountain. Like I never did Disneyland because I was more of a valley guy, San Fernando Valley. Right. Yeah. So I hit Magic Mountain. I did a lot of line relief, where like you would be in one place and the audience would just kind of slowly move past you. I, I did the same thing. It was great. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, you could do the same joke or the same trick. Just you know, wait a few minutes, just try it again, and the exactly, crowd would keep refreshing. Yeah. That's exactly. I, I broke my arm once. I was doing a show where I was walking the tight wire, and it collapsed on me. And it was in in front of four thousand Boy Scouts. And that that sound will never leave my brain of all four thousand Boy Scouts yelling an obscenity all together in three part harmony as I crashed down off of this tight wire. And um, the f flaming torches came down on my head. And I was the MC of the show, too. So I was mic'd up and I bounced back up and got on stage and introduced the next act. And it was at the Camp Pendleton Marine Base in San Diego. And a couple acts later, I had to introduce the commandant of the Marine Base. And so this guy comes up and he looks like Dolph Lundgren. He's in his camo fatigues. The haircut is perfect. And he's, he's the big boss there. And he goes, did you see that guy? He fell and the fire landed on top of him. It was like Rocky. And he got right back up and did his duty. It was, 
I still get tingles up my spine when I remember it. But anyway, I broke my arm that night. Right, and you finished so the show I, with a broken arm. I was, I was just afraid the guys were going to want to shake your hand, and the story was going to be you, <laughs> you screaming in pain as as he grabbed you with a of steel. Yeah. And... <laughs> but uh, for the next three weeks, I had to go back to Disneyland and work. And so I did the same thing that you were talking about. I did line duty. I, I just did like uh, invisible decks 1,500 times a day at the, uh, at the start of the Mr. Toad's Wild Ride line. Now, you grew up in uh, Tustin, is that right? In, in that that's Irvine right. area? Yes, I uh-huh. went to UC Irvine, and that's where I actually learned how to juggle, was in college. So you didn't come from any kind of showbiz background? Your parents weren't uh, in showbiz, anything like that? No, my dad uh, was an engineer. He graduated from Caltech and wanted me to go to Caltech, and I eventually did with a, one of uh, Chuck Burns' shows. We did a show at Caltech. And my <laughs> right, mom okay. was, was a mom, and uh, of course, which is an incredibly difficult job. And she did some singing when she was younger, but basically she uh, did her work as a mom. Now, were you into athletics? I mean, how did you discover juggling, and how long did it take uh, once you saw it in college to kind of get hooked on it? Well, I, I learned in college, I was living in a little trailer park called Irvine Meadows in, a, in the Yellow Submarine, this bright yellow sub, uh, trailer that I had. And my neighbor had graduated from Clown College. His name was Jonathan Schwartz, a brilliant, really funny guy. And he one day he just said, hey, want, want to learn how to juggle? And I said, yes. And so we went out to the parking lot and he had a couple of tennis balls and he's, he showed me the method that they teach you in Clown College, which is the method that I've taught lots and lots of people since. And it's a great progression of learning how to juggle. So I learned how to juggle there. And then uh, we actually got to open for the kinks one time because we we're all sort of goofy mime juggler people. Nobody was very advanced. But one day the, the ASB activities coordinator came by and said, hey, do you guys want to open for the kinks tonight? And we said, of course we do. And we got dressed up in white face and rode unicycles and did backflips and just stupid, crazy stuff. And then um, I fell in love with this dancer because we were right next to the fine arts department. And she used to come by my trailer all the time. And she was a dancer and she graduated and was going to go off to New York City to um, actually work as an intern at the Whitney Museum. And so I said, well, I'll come with you. So when I was there, we were walking through Washington Square Park one day, and we saw this guy on a slack wire, and I just caught the very end of his show, and he was up there with an umbrella, and he said, folks, if you like what you see, come and put some cash in my umbrella when I come down. And they all, like 200 people, moved forward and dropped cash in his umbrella. And I looked at my girlfriend, and I said, that looks like fun. (laughs) So I I went down to Canal Street and got a a rope and a winch and went out to Central Park every day and taught myself how to walk the wire and worked on juggling and found a broken chair on the sidewalk in New York City and some guy had told me how to make flaming torches so I took the chair legs and got the wick and the wire and wrapped it and worked on flaming torch juggling and all that stuff. How quickly did humor become important because it seems like as long as I've known you've always been a, a comedy juggler. Did sort of comedy come first even before the juggling? Yes, uh, as far back as when I was get, getting kicked out of school every day as class clown. I think a lot of us that do comedy started out really young that way, you know, just making people laugh. You figured out that you could make people laugh when you were younger. 
and he just kept that up. My first probably 50 shows, I said nothing at all. I was just a mind juggler because after I saw Jim Ridgely, I used to watch Philippe Petit all the time in Washington Square Park. Of course, he speaks English, but not really well. This was in 1978, and he would come out, and he'd do several hours at a time and never say a word. And this is Philippe Petit, the wire walker of the walk fame and man on wire fame, the guy that walked between the World Trade Center towers. And he used to street perform in Washington Square Park and Sheridan Square all the time. I would watch him, and he'd never talk. So anyway, my first shows were silent. But then I remember one show specifically at UC Irvine when I went back there again that was just sort of improvisational and fooling around, and that really was a turnaround show for me that I could talk and just have fun with the crowd and be improvisational. And that made a huge difference. And after that, I just talked all the time. Did you have any, any acting background going into this? Not before that. You know, before I knew, went to New York, I didn't, except for Boy Scouts, of course. I was deeply involved with Boy Scouts, and we would always have campfires. And I worked at summer camp, and we would do two huge campfires in front of 500 kids a week. And so we would do skits and songs and backflips and crazy stuff all the time. So you came up in the Boy Scouts, like you were a Boy Scout yourself. And yes. there's a lot of performing in the Boy Scouts? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a big thing for campfires and Boy Scouts. That, you know, at, um, at your camp out, you have a big fire. Right. And you sit around and maybe roast marshmallows or make peach cobbler or something. And then what are you going to do around the fire? Well, you sing some songs, some, somebody pulls out a guitar. And doing skits is a huge thing in Boy Scouts. All sorts of classic kind of vaudeville kind of comedy things. It's a huge part of it. We we did these rap skits way back in 1974, uh, like, the, like the old American melodrama with the villain and the right, damsel right. in distress. And we had this whole thing called What's a Matter Cow? And it was a whole rap thing that we <laughs> did back then uh, about uh, the, the melodrama. So is that where you got your first taste of, uh, of laughter and like a p audience applause and sort of got the, the feel and taste of it and got hooked a bit? Well, I think that came when I was five and ten right really you like know, the attention I was, yeah i like the attention and i was able to make people laugh so that that really worked for me but then when i i went to new york and i came back and then i i did enter the fine arts program there at my university when i finished my degree and i did operas and dance and took acting classes and was in a shakespeare show and that improv group was part of the university and was there a plan in place at that point like to become a professional variety artist or did you see the variety arts as a, a stepping stone to something else i just kind of went day by day dan I, yeah. it, was, it was fun to do sure i was making uh, good money uh, i started doing some little shows around the university when i went back and then i saw an audition notice for uh, an animal park right down the street from uc Irvine, a place called lion country safari and they wanted somebody to do some shows on the weekends. So I went down there, I auditioned, I got the job. I think the slack wire was a big key to that. And so every weekend I'd do 10 shows for them. This was before Disneyland. And I'd do 10 shows, half hours each. And did it rain or shine, heat, whatever. I was out there one time I did it with a pair of swim fins on because I knew it was going to rain. So I thought, <laughs> I'd bring some swim fins and a mask. And I did my whole show in swim fins and a mask. And at that point, I was really definitely into just bring it. 
for years and years, even in my Vegas shows, I would do the classic street performers intro, which is, please, if I do something great, yell and scream and applaud. You know that whole thing. It helps bring bring people around. You know, if I do right. something bad, boo me. Boo me. Be funny. Be creative. I'm a team player, was my thing. And so people would yell things out. I actually think it discouraged the people that wanted to be jerk kind of hecklers because they said, well, we're not going to help you, dude. You know, <laughs> right, right, right. But the people that were sort of creative, they would yell things out. I'm sure the M&M thing that I do and has been like a mainstay of my act for 35 years, the two bowling balls and the M&M, I'm sure that was somebody in the crowd that threw me an M&M and said, juggle this with your bowling balls. I think a good portion of my act has come out of acts. I mean, you always struck me as a guy who was sort of very confident on stage, very energetic. Like you say, you always brought it. So it's hard to it's hard to heckle the guy that is, that's in control. You know, it's, yeah, it's easy to heckle so. the guys already having trouble. Hecklers are usually bullies. They don't want to they don't want to help you like you yeah. like you said. They want to see if they can bring you down. Right. They smell blood and they want to go for it. Right. And I think the Boy Scouts probably helped that a lot because I did so many things in leadership workshops and camps and campfires. So many and an amazing amount of times when I was in front of hundreds and hundreds of people and had to talk to them or teach them something. Taught all the merit badges in aquatics there for years and years. So my ability to be in front of people uh, was just completely natural from that. Now, doing the, the slack rope, did you move into cruises? Were you able to, to bring the slack rope on those, those early cruise ships? On some of them, yes. I used to do some stuff on Carnival. And, they, of course, you've seen the cruise ships where there's structural poles on the edge of the stage. So, like, uh, on a Carnival ship, there was two stainless steel poles, you know, like a third of the way across the stage. And I would just put up some uh, rock climbing webbing and hook uh, some aircraft cable in between them and jump up on that wire and do it there. And uh, like the, uh, the for the Lion Country Safari shows, I made an A-frame out of an old Boy Scout monkey bridge design where there's stakes and two A-frames and stakes on the other side and held it up. It was about 10 feet tall. And so I was, I've pretty much been able to do the, the wire every place. In fact, one of my first big shows here in Vegas was a show called Spellbound, a big magic show put on by Dick Foster, who was here producing for years and years. And they, they hired me to do the show with Joaquin Ayala as the star magician. And I was in their office, and they showed me the, the set design. And there were two balconies on either side. And I said, you know, Dick, I could do a tight wire between these two balconies. And he looked at me like, oh, my gosh, that would be so great. Because we don't want just a look. We want people to interact with all of these set pieces. And that would be perfect. So I did the whole bowling ball bit, and then I got up. There was like a fireman's pole, and I would climb that fireman's pole up to the balcony and then step out on the wire. And I did that every night, uh, twice a night for years and years and years. It was really fun. Now, I know the fear like, like I face as a juggler, you know, the fear of making a mistake, the fear of dropping. How does that compare to the fear of, of stepping out on the wire every night? It's like riding a bike. I mean, it's not that high. It's not like if I fall, I would hurt myself. Right. But that was one of the first things that I decided it was important to learn when I was first learning it in Central Park in New York. And that is, what am I going to do 
when I fall, because I know at some point I'll get distracted and I'll fall. Right. Or I just won't be completely on that way. So I practiced falling. And I was strong because I was a, had been a pole vaulter and I juggled bowling balls. So I knew that if I lose my balance, I'll just bend my knees. I'll grab the wire on the way down. I'll never even touch the ground. Well, you're also very tall. Were you like about six foot three or so? Yes, yes. So, but I'm able to just grab the wire and swing down, and, and it won't be a fall. It'll be a controlled lowering, is I think the technical name. But that would be like a disadvantage to be tall. I think you'd want to be like a smaller person for the tightrope itself. I mean, the ones you see you specialize in it tend to be sort of small acrobatic types. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you do a lot of balancing. I've seen, uh, you know, portions of your act. Which is harder to balance, a tall thing or a short thing? Uh, a sh well, a short thing, I guess. So, really? Maybe you're, well, yeah. I mean, it's easier to, to balance a, a broom than it is to balance a golf tee. Uh, correct. Right. So, a, a long thing is easier to balance. Right. So, basically, you're, you're, so, you're, you should be easier for you to balance than a short person. I, I was exactly the opposite of what I should be thinking. Yeah, it, it was. It, it's pretty easy, it, and it's like riding a bike. And it's completely unconscious. You, you know, you don't have time to really go, oh, I need to put my arm out two inches more on the right side to counteract this on the left side. You fell that one time. Was it because you said because the rigging collapsed? Yes. I had set up the rig in what turned out to be a great big rodeo field at the, at the marine base. And it was basically two stakes on one side the rope connected to it up 10 feet to the A-frame, across to the other A-frame, and down to the stakes on the other end of the rope. So I'd staked it in because I knew that I had another gig someplace and blah, blah, blah. So it was ready when I got there. And all I had to do was push the A-frames up and go. Well, I, I made two mistakes. The first one was I didn't realize when I set it up, it didn't occur to me that it was going to be really dark when I did that later. And the lights were about 200 meters away behind all of those scouts sitting in big bleachers. So there was no light up there. I could not see the rope. And, of course, you need to see the rope as a reference point for your balance. Right. So I was up there with – I was able to stand up. That's when I realized I am in trouble. And I, I thought, well, okay, I'll just take one step and – Hopefully, I'll take another step, blah, blah, blah. And I took one step, and the characteristic of the rodeo field is that it's just basically compacted dust. It had no strength to it, and that next step pulled all the stakes out. And so I fell, and then that whole rig fell on top of me, and I'm holding the flaming torches, and all of the guys just screamed at once. It was quite dramatic. But then, you, like you say, you have to get back up there, so now you're doing this show. So how high would you be above the ground? You're on these balconies. It's a slack rope, so at, at the base, what are you, four or five feet above the ground still? No, that one, it was a good six feet because it was probably eight or nine feet to the wire. That balcony was pretty high. And then the wire was used with a, a chain, what do they call it, a chain tensioner? Like truckers winch? Use. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't so much a winch. We had it worked out so the length of the cable was just the right length. And then we hooked that trucker's lever. It's just like a one-throw lever that truckers use to hold down their, their load. And it was just perfect. 
Right. So it was not a slack wire, and it wasn't a perfectly tight wire either, but it was somewhere in between. So it didn't really hang down too far. So it was probably six feet off the ground in the middle when I got to the middle. Are those the gigs you like the best? The gigs they are sort of like a long-term? What's the longest run you ever had in a, in, a, in a gig? I had a couple that were three years. The one at Spellbound there was three years, and the one at Follies Berger was three years. The one in the Bahamas was, was two years. So I really like them. This one here at Planet Hollywood now is, is going on three years, and it's, I, I do like it a lot better. You know how you just get a feel for the room. You know the room. You know what it feels like when the crowd is with you or not with you. And I just enjoy that a lot more. I've, I've never really pushed the corporate thing because the few that I've done, I've always felt like I have to deal with a lot of weird chemistry here with this company that may not... Uh, the members of this group may not really even like each other. So they may not want to be here. They're usually really odd. You know, half the time you'll do one and there's a 50-foot a dance floor between you and the audience, you know, all those kind of problems. So I've, I've really just enjoyed being here in Las Vegas and doing the shows. Well, it's tough on those one-offs. I mean, sometimes you do a show and you think like, oh, well, give me a couple more tries, I'd nail it. You know, you, you go, you learned <laughs> so much in that, uh, in that first attempt. Yes, exactly. And then, but then you just pack your bags and get the check and go and go. Well, I I tried. You know, and <laughs> I've heard so ma- I've heard so many nightmares of corporate shows. We used to call that dance floor the the comedy death zone. That, exactly. That, that, yeah. That big gap between you and the crowd. You know, the closer they're packed in, the the more they tend to be big laughers. Yeah, big big energy. I did one for Carl Karcher at Caesar's Palace here. And it had to be a 100-foot dance floor. <laughs> and so I'm having people throw me things. And they had a guy there with a camera, and they're showing it up on the, the IMAX thing or whatever they call that. And I had the lady throw me the apple so I could juggle, you know, the bowling ball hatchet apple thing and eat the apple. All that. And so this lady had to throw it like 30, 40 feet. And I caught it. And the guy was following the apple with the whole time. And I could hear him go, I got it the whole way. He was so excited that he was able to follow the apple. But... Besides that, the whole rest of the show was really tough because people were far away. One of my favorites was we had a open bar, and they had the back wall lined with balloons. And at a certain point, the people who were drinking thought it'd be fun to pop the balloons with forks. You know, <laughs> so, so and they were pretty far away from us. But throughout, like, the, so like halfway through, all of a sudden, this this popping starts to begin, and yeah, so try to compete with the popping of the balloons. I remember I had given up a, a, a cruise ship gig because I thought, oh, corporates, they're the way to go. And uh, yeah. key motors and the popping of the balloons, unforgettable. Yeah, only if you have a good therapist. Well, you know, sometimes people think like there's, there's a certain image of what something is, like, like working in yeah. Vegas. It's, it's, uh, it becomes a lifestyle thing. Like Even what you're talking about, you know, like doing one or two shows a night, six or seven nights a week. And, you know, basically the... You have a little bit of freedom within the context of what you're doing, but are you talking about eight-minute act, ten-minute act? What's what's the time frame? Yeah, in, in this one I do uh, seven or eight minutes. Yeah, twice a night. In fact, I I got my phone changed the other day, and the guy while he was transferring my data said, "So what do you do?" And I said, "Oh, I'm a juggler in a show here." And he goes, "Oh, how long is the show?" And I said, "It's about ninety minutes, but I, I only do seven minutes." And you could see him kind of freeze up as he's working on my phone, doing the math in his head. And he looked at me almost angrily, and he said, "You work fourteen minutes a day, <laughs> right?" <laughs> I do, I do, yes, I do. Well, yeah. it's like that story about the the master repairman who 
comes to your house and hits your refrigerator with a hammer and you pay him because he knows where to hit the refrigerator. Like it's not the 14 minutes. It's all those years of, of practice. And you have kind of a, a, an interesting approach to practice. You're so sort of dedicated to improvement that you even have a website, uh, secretsofthechampions.com. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Throughout my life, I've taught things to people. And with scouts, I taught swimming and canoeing and uh, coached kids in pole vaulting. I was a pole vaulter in high school and college myself. I've taught pole vaulting for, I don't know, three or four different high schools. And I've noticed a problem with people underestimating what they're able to do. Now, for example, when I was t- teaching myself the tight wire in Central Park in New York City, I would practice for two hours a day, and other people that became friends of mine would come by and just watch, and we'd chat and talk, and they'd go, man, I could never do that. I could never do that. I could never do that. And the difference between me and them was that I was trying to do it, and they were just continually telling themselves, I could never do that. And so I've always been interested in how people learn, and also I had this epiphany one day. I was watching, I think, Boris Becker play tennis, and he killed it. It was an amazing tournament. So then I went out, I was a tennis player just for fun, and I went out and I played some really, really bad tennis after that. And I thought, well, what is Boris Becker doing that I don't know to do as far as getting better? And so I thought that would be an interesting thing to talk to great people that are really, really good at what they do and interview them and film them and see what they do day to day for two reasons. One, so that you have that information of what they actually do. And that way you can do that similar kind of drills. And then the other part of it was to show people that people are not born superstars. And that was my biggest point, is that these people work really, really hard, and they're very intelligent about their practice, and they are very adaptable. They adjust their practice all the time, and they're not born that way. If you, if you watch TV today, you'd be guaranteed to understand that to be a superstar, all you have to do is drink a couple of bottles of Gatorade, and then you can accept all of your medals. And that's just not the case. These people are hardworking, they're very smart, and they're consistent. And so uh, I made that website uh, to show my pole vaulters that I coach and other people that might be interested that this is what people do every day. They actually get out there and they practice and they have coaches and they analyze what their performance is like, they videotape it, and they get better because of that, not because they were born a superstar. Now, do you think it's become sort of easier for today's juggler to sort of get recognition and exposure without having to go through the steps we had to go through? Like this, like we had to actually get out in front of people and risk failure a lot more than the sort of modern generation. We had a professional jugglers panel at the last IJA sort of talking about the future of juggling and sort of where careers are going. As a person who's had right. a, a very long career, and hopefully I wouldn't say you're, you're you know, in the tail end of it, but I think after 30, 40 years, we all have to think about the end of our showbiz lives. If you were starting out, if you were a person a couple of years into it, where do you see it all going now? Well, I see it going 
where uh, in two different lines, and I think it always has gone in two different lines. One, the guys that are really excited about being technical jugglers. And that's a challenge, and it's beautiful, and it's amazing, and it takes incredible practice. And then there are another path where people want to be like comedy jugglers, let's say, or or more entertainment jugglers. And that will always be around also because people want to laugh. They want to be amazed, and they want to laugh, and they want to be touched. That's the key to every art form is that you change people you change their life by what they see. And being a, a talking act, you're able to do that. Like my act is some pretty good juggling, you know, nothing technical as far as seven balls or anything. But, you know, I do juggle two bowling balls and an M&M, and that is a hook for me. That has been the remarkable thing about my act for 30 years. And I think people are amazed by that just because it touches them in an artistic way, because they realize how difficult that must be. So I see both lines of the juggling continuing. And I I think I understand by what you mean, uh, how it's different now than it was when we were starting. When we were starting, unless you got called to the Carson show, like you you and Barry got called so many times, you're going to do festivals and fairs and birthday parties and company picnics and, and maybe a show like in Vegas or Atlantic City. But you're always going to be doing it in front of people for the most part. Nowadays, you can get really well-known and never even do a show in front of a crowd if you want. You can be a YouTube juggler. You can do your whole act on YouTube and never really have to do an act in front of people and and still get well-known. I was at a practice space, and there was a gig that had come up, and I, I was there. I said, I'm looking for a juggler. And this fellow says, well, I'm a juggler. I'm like, oh, good, I have this gig. He goes, well, I don't perform. I thought, well, <laughs> then, then you're, then I, to me, that you're, you're not a juggler. Like, like to me, juggler is a sort of a job title. So this is what you said about the, the bowling ball and the M&M. Because this is something I always teach when I, when I would coach is about understandability. And to me, it always meant that people could understand what you're saying. But I like what you were saying about the two bowling balls and the M&M. The reason it was artistically successful because they understood it. Like the audience understood it was difficult. You know, they could see right. see like, oh, these are these are different sizes, different weights. Where nowadays yeah. so much of it is sort of inferred, the audience has to they have no idea the difficulty of what they're seeing. That's a that's a good that's Absolutely. a good understanding of, of what made your act successful. Well, one of the things that happened to me, I was in Balboa Park once, before I was really started. And I saw Kit Summers, you know Kit. He was out in Balboa Park outside, had a, a fair-sized group around him, and he was juggling seven rings outside, a little bit breezy, a very difficult thing to do. And he brought them all down on his head, you know, like the ring guys do, and there was no applause at all. And one guy yelled out, can you do eight? And that day was an epiphany for me saying, you know what? They don't get it. They don't know how incredibly hard that was, and they don't get it. They, they don't understand how much more practice it is to do seven or eight or even between five and seven. They don't know. And like you're saying just now, they do know the difference between a bowling ball and an M&M. Well, it's like you're saying here in your, in your quote on your website, you say Michael Hawley is a juggler like Stephen King is a typist. I like that because to me, to me also I feel like the juggling is a template. Like I think at a certain point you have to decide, am I a juggler 
who has to be funny to sell the juggling or am I a comedian who has to juggle so I can be funny? And, and I think it's good because looking at your website, like you have your website's humorous. And I, I remember talking to another comedy juggler and his website was very dry. It was very sort of straight. And he says, well, I don't uh -huh. want to be funny on my website because that might come across corny. And I thought, well, if you're uh -huh. a comedy juggler afraid to be funny on your website. So, so I appreciate the fact that you actually were humorous in describing a humorous act. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. I, and I, I think that that guy's fear is going to carry into his act. You know, if you're corny, you're corny. Yeah, I mean, corny humor is corny. Like, he was afraid that the humor on his website would come across corny. And I'm like, uh -huh. if it's corny, it'll come across corny. I mean, it seemed, <laughs> seemed to make sense to me. So I liked it that so many times you see a and video. corny sells. Well, I mean, comedy sells. I mean, I remember we used to watch yeah. Dick Franco. And to me, Dick Franco yeah. was a perfect review show act. Uh -huh. but, but I wouldn't say he was challenging the audience artistically or intellectually with his with yeah. his comedy. I mean, it right, was right. it was that perfect blend of, you know, Americana and straightforward shtick with, you know, super yeah, good yeah. juggling. So yeah. and that's a, that's a real art form in itself. That eight minute, you know, act, the comedy act like the Micah Doe's, you know, your act. You don't have much time to right. win him over. I mean, you can't be that subtle. You know, you have to kind of hit them right. quick and hit them hard. And it's fun. It's like riding a wave. I mean, you gotta you gotta get them going. Absolutely, absolutely. And that is such a rush to do that twice a night, every night. You just wait for that to happen. And I, I think part of the fun too is really listening to the audience. Like I videotape nowadays. I used to just audio tape my act all the time. I would count the laughs and I would evaluate what was working and what wasn't working. And I remember I uh, did it again just the other day. And in seven minutes, I had 72 laughs. And I thought, that's good. And any, any place where there was a quiet spot, okay, why isn't that joke working? Is it going to work? I'll do the same thing. You have a, a new idea for a joke. You try it three or four times. Maybe you change the wording or a prop or something. After a while, it, it works great. Or if it doesn't, you just drop it and you move on. But um, it's fun to listen to the audience and become one with them and be fun, have a good time with these complete strangers. And I like to yell things out. I like to try different languages with them. The other day in one of the shows, I just came back from a Disney ship up in Alaska and, and people were yelling some things out. And I actually told this one guy that yelled something out, I said, we're switching places because you are funny. And, you know, I love to have the audience play that way. Well, improv has always been very important to you. You even start improv groups and classes. What, uh, what about improv draws you and what about improv can help other comedy jugglers? I, I think the number one thing that it does for you is give you confidence that things are going to work out. They won't always be funny, but I think one of the mainstays of being funny is not to appear like you're trying to be funny. You're trying to be real, and oftentimes reality is funny. I used to watch your act, of course, on, on television and, and the shows I got to see, and you weren't hamming it up. You were being this character that was a little bit different, but you weren't like winking at the crowd like, oh, aren't I funny? I think improv allows you to have confidence in yourself. And one of the first things that you learn in improv is no denial which means that if the audience does something, if they boo or if they yell something out 
or if something doesn't work, you say yes to it and you build upon whatever is happening. Like I mentioned about the M&M. Somebody probably said, juggle this. And I, I didn't say, no, I have my act. I'm doing <laughs> what I do. And that said, shut up. And I know that there are acts and comedians out there that will do that. They have their heckle lines ready to go, loaded and locked and loaded. And they will put you down so hard. But I was never that way. I always said yes to whatever they brought up. So improv really trains you to do that. And secondly, just as far as being funny improvisationally, what I used to teach in the classes was that I truly believe that everything you've ever experienced, read, seen on TV, talked about, tasted, whatever, is in your brain. And if you exercise the ability to just let it come out at an appropriate time, you will have amazing things happen in your show. And people have said that to me after shows that I've done saying, where did that even come from? And uh, one of the cruise directors said to me once uh, years ago at a, on a ship I was doing, he said, how does your brain work, dude? Because that it was so obscure and so out there and so perfect. And it's basically because of that improv comedy training where you practice just letting it go and letting all of that experience in your brain come out and be in touch with your partners who might be your partners on stage in an improv comedy group or your juggling partner or your partners called the audience. And they really get excited when they realize that this is a special moment because whatever you just said was never said before. And it was because of them being there that this special, spontaneous thing happened. They just get so turned on by that. It's really an electric feeling. And it's fun. So the improv comedy allows you to do that. You practice being spontaneous. You practice trusting what's in your head and just going for it no matter what's happening. Well, that was a, that was a great answer, Michael. I mean, you certainly summed it up as far as you know, what it takes to be an effective comedy performer is that there are certain moments where there's a right answer or certainly a correct answer comedically. Like, what would be the funny thing to say here? Like, what's the reference or what's the answer to this comedy question that's been brought up through this situation? And that muscle has to be so quick and so sharp to bring up something that could be so obscure or, or that right reference that makes everybody laugh. Or how do you think of that? And to have that kind yeah. of combination of a good, strong act that you can depend on with this ability to improv and, and sort of access the Rolodex in your head that's a good good summing up of what a, a good performer, you know, the good qualities that a performer needs. Yeah, and I think you and I might be the only two that remember what a Rolodex. <laughs> exactly. But, yeah. Well, when you're using your your your, uh, your phone, your, your Google search, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. When you, when I you go remember on reading an article uh, uh, by uh, an interview with Robin Williams, and he said, you know, everybody sees me as this improvisational character on stage, and that's definitely my character on stage. And he said, ninety nine percent of my act is completely scripted the same thing every night. But my character, I'm able to make it seem like I've never said it before. And that's part of my craft, just like any actor. You can't make it sound rote and like you've said it 49 times before. But he said, in every now and then, something will come from somewhere. And this is quoting him. It's like a hotline from God right. that this just comes out of your mouth at the right time. The Rolodex is flipped to the right card 
and Google is on full 5 gigahertz Wi-Fi, and this thought comes out and comes right out, and it's so perfect, and you've never said it before. You've never even thought about the concept before, and out of count. And that is, like you just mentioned, it's sort of like training that muscle to work and be ready at the right time. Well, the rotary phone rings, and you got to answer it sometimes, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, we got to open for Robin uh, quite a few times, and I always thought that was his big trick, was that he would have all this material and then he'd move it around. Like some days he'd open with something, or if someone said uh, you know, something from the audience, he'd be able to kind of move his way into a bit so that it appeared right. more spontaneous than it was. But So he, he used a lot of stagecraft along with uh, you know, his, his brilliant mind to sort of appear more spontaneous than he was even. Sure, yeah, and that's a trick, yeah. In fact, I saw him do the same improv twice on two national TV shows. Right. The same. same Shakespearean Three Mile Island thing on like Dick Cavett one night and Merv Griffin the other night. And I thought, wait a minute, what's going on here? He just thought of it both nights the same way exactly the same spontaneously yes yeah out of the blue <laughs> or maybe he just had a short-term memory problem but it was pretty really amazing to watch him and sort of see like oh here's that bit like, like he would do this thing at the end of his concerts where they would have a box of props just sort of random props but you know oh, you'd wow. see you'd see the same props like oh another hat or like well, there's a you know the baseball bat with the team's logo on it or something and he'd go into his shtick and you know you'd, you'd go oh He's going for that, you know, whatever it is, because it's like what he already had before. So, but it doesn't take away from his genius. It just shows you that in every art form, there is art and there is craft. And in the comedy juggler, you know, you have the template of of the act, but you have to have the freedom of the improvisational actor as well. And speaking of acting, you've also done some acting. And in fact... You're in a movie that can be now purchased. Is that right? Is it uh, now available? That's, that's correct. It's gone direct to DVD. Direct to DVD and, uh, called Billy Toppet, Master Magician. Master Magician with Lance Burton, starring Lance Burton, written by Lance Burton and Michael Godot, and featuring every magician and juggler that lives in Las Vegas. And we just finished filming about it. We finished about a year ago, I think. But it took us five years to complete it because, you know, people come in and out of town and it's hard to get everybody together. And it's a a caper comedy. Is it like a mob movie or a heist movie? He's in some kind of danger, Lance Burton is? Yeah, it starts with a a group of guys that are sort of at the birthday party picnic level. And they would meet every day to uh, chat about their day and interact and banter with each other. And there's a love interest of the waitress in the restaurant where we would meet every day. And then suddenly we're at a casino and Lance sees some guy at a table cheating and he mentions it to his buddy who's the head of security there at the casino and then all hell breaks loose after that. So there's chase scenes and love scenes and Mick and some craziness, a lot of fun people in in, in the movie. And, And one of the things that I really like about being involved with it was, you know, both Michael Godot and I have been in town for 30, over 30 years for Michael, I think. And we were never close. We never really met. And then finally we got to meet because they asked me to be in this movie as Michael's former partner in the Fly-By-Night Jugglers, Frank Miles. And so I got to be at that part. 
and Michael and I became really good friends, and I, I really love Michael. He's a great guy. We we compare notes. We create things together, and dance, or, you know, talk about building props or jokes or whatever together. Ride bikes together, and uh, he's he really a great, great guy. And I got to meet and hang out with Lance. Lance started these lunches a few years ago when Peter Ravine was starting to to come to Alzheimer's, and so Lance started these lunches where we'd all meet once a week with all of the folks in town that Peter knew, and that way he'd have a place to go that was fun and comfortable, and he, he knew most of the people for most of the time that he was with us, and, and I got to become friends with Lance and Bill Smith and all the, all the magicians that I really didn't know because I was a juggler, so I wasn't part of that circle. Well, I mean, we very rarely work with other jugglers. So how important has it been, this sort of juggling scene? Like I say, when we started out this podcast, You've kind of been under the radar. You've been working this whole time. Is it important for you to sort of stay up with what other jugglers are doing? Is it important for other jugglers to sort of know that you've been out there this whole time plugging away as a comedy juggler? Well, I would hope that, that would, it would be encouraging for them. You know, I've done very well. And I've been able to work for 37 years professionally as a juggler and not have to do anything else and travel the world. You know, I've been to Africa twice and Indonesia and all over Europe and here in Las Vegas, earning my living as a professional juggler. I would hope that that would be encouraging for people to know that if you do what you love and you do it well and you stay adjustable to what the market needs and pay attention to your your audience, that they will keep calling you. So I think it's important for them to know what I do for that reason so that they could go... Well, I, I want to go to college and maybe get a job as an insurance guy. There are other things that you can do that will allow you to do what you love to do and make a living at it as long as you continue to pay attention to your audience and make them want to see you. I don't think we can do it better than that, Michael. That's an excellent way to end this podcast. What a, what a beautiful way to sum up what your career has been about. It's sort of a, a degree of excellence I've always associated with you and as a hardworking professional guy. You know, with a great persona and a great look. And, you know, I always think of you as the tall, dapper, blonde comedy juggler. You know, I mean, from the guy I knew uh, 30 years ago, still out there plugging away, doing it. And it gives me a lot of hope and confidence in the future to know you're still out there making people laugh. I just want to say thanks so much for being on the Drop Everything podcast and give it up for... Michael Holly, Thanks, Michael. Thank you, Dan. And you've, you've always been an inspiration for me, too. I love watching you guys perform, and you made me laugh every time I saw you. So thanks for having me on your podcast, and I, I hope I get to see you again soon. Thank you so much to Mr. Michael Holly. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 49, my conversation with comedy juggler and now master thespian Michael Holly. Thanks, Michael. Hey, let's also thank our sponsors, starting with the IJA. That stands for International Jugglers Association. Like juggling? Like meeting jugglers? Want to find out more about juggling and jugglers? Go to juggle.org. Like skill toys? Then go find out more about the Ring Dama at ringdama.com. And keep your eyes peeled for the Zing Dama coming out this September from Zing Toys. Thanks, everybody. Now drop everything except when you're juggling.